This is God's word. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, in, uh, believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that, does lead, that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. That's quite an ending to a letter, isn't it? Verse 21. We'll be coming back to that towards the end. I love the way that John signs off there. No love, love from John. Uh, just little children, keep yourself from idols. That's the end. Um, we are coming, as I said a few moments ago, to the end of our series through the letter of 1 John. Uh, it's been, we've called it Behold What Love, um, because in some ways, looking through the book of 1 John is like an examination of the Christian understanding of, of love. And here in the last few verses of this letter, as John sort of signs off and, and draws everything together, he presses home his main point so that everybody gets it. And it's our hope, it's my hope and prayer that this evening you and I will get it as we hear the message that John has for us. He hopes that when we get it, when we understand his main message, that we will be filled with a, a kind of confidence, a, a level of boldness, which is otherworldly, which is unusual. Not a sort of cockiness or an arrogance, but a humble boldness, an inner poise in our lives. And is that that John says, if you understand my message, then you will receive that kind of confidence in your lives. So we're going to try and understand these verses together in this sort of way, in this structure. First of all, John tells us where this confidence comes from. That's the main point, right? Where it comes from. And then he gives us three effects that it will have in our lives. If we know where our confidence comes from, and really grasp hold of it, then it will manifest itself in three specific ways in our lives. Okay? So let's look first of all and be sure together before we finish this series where our confidence comes from. 
The key verse is in verse 13. John writes to the churches and he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. See that? He's not saying here, I write to you so that you may have eternal life, although that's true, but I write to you so that you may know you have eternal life. And you might ask yourself, well, what's, what's the difference? But the key word right there is knowing. It is knowing, 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 knowing beyond a shadow of doubt into your innermost core being that you have this life that God holds out for us. I'm writing to you so that you may know you have eternal life. So you're assured beyond a shadow of a doubt. Otherwise, your confidence, whatever that looks like in your life, will be groundless. It'll come and go like bits of grass in the wind, blown around. And so John points us to these pieces of evidence or these testimonies testifying to the truth. And we kind of envisage maybe a law court scenario where one um, witness after another enters the witness box and gives a testimony that everybody in the courtroom hears that testifies to the truth of the situation. And those witnesses are seen in verse 6. Jesus, who came by water and by blood and later on the Holy Spirit. These three testify, it says in verse 7. So we have these three things, if you like, getting up to give testimony. Jesus, who came by water, but not water only, by water and by blood. What does it mean that Jesus came by water, first of all? There's a difference of opinion um, when you look at the commentators on, on that, um, what it actually means when Jesus came by water, but the, the ones that I've read generally seem to say that this is referring to baptism, to Jesus' own baptism or to his baptizing activity. Baptism uh, is, is a way, or was a way of Jesus when he was preaching that the kingdom of God is coming, that the age of the Holy Spirit is on its way, the time of great blessing and outpouring of the favor of God, that was marked and symbolized and shown through baptism. And Jesus came baptizing. But he didn't just come baptizing, it says he came by water and by the blood. See, if you've been with us over the last uh, few weeks, we've been going through the book of 1 John, uh, you'll remember that there were a group of people uh, who left the churches that John was writing to. <clears throat> they were teaching a different gospel. They were denying certain crucial and key facts about Jesus. They denied that he was the Son of God in the flesh. They denied that he died an atoning death. They were quite happy to accept that Jesus was uh, some sort of prophet or preacher or you know, teaching about the new kingdom. But when it came to him dying a bloody death on the cross, they would not have any of it. But John is clear. Jesus didn't just come by water, but by blood. In his death on a cross, the death of the Son of God. And that was something that the false teachers in the background just could not accept. So we have the evidence that Jesus came baptizing through the eyewitness accounts. We have the evidence that Jesus came and died on the cross as the Son of God and rose on the third day. But there's a third witness as well that is waiting to take his place. And that is the Holy Spirit. 
We've already seen in earlier passages that the Holy Spirit, otherwise known as the anointing, teaches you, that is, teaches the church about everything. It says in verse 8 that these three agree, the Spirit and the water and the blood. What he's saying is that their combined witness, their combined testimony adds up to point in one direction. And that is spelled out for us in verse 11. Together, the water and the blood and the Spirit say this. God gave us eternal life and this is in his Son. That is the testimony, that is the message that God is giving us and giving to the churches. You know, some people characterize faith, Christian faith, as some kind of irrational leap into the dark, into the great unknown, as if becoming a Christian is a case of just believing, shutting off your mind and and jumping in, let go, some kind of hopeful punt into the future. Maybe some sort of irrational experience confirms to you that you are a Christian. But this is not a biblical form of Christianity. You see, the Apostle John, when he writes this stuff, wants us to see the evidence. He wants us to grasp the facts. He was clear, remember, at the outset of the letter. Remember, he said, that which we have seen with our eyes and we have touched with our hands and we've heard with our ears, that we are proclaiming to you. See, John isn't just inviting them to come and have some experience or just to forget everything and leap into the darkness of faith. John wants us to grasp the facts and take it seriously. Christianity, like no other religion, takes historical facts most seriously because it rests on what actually happened in the past. So for some people... They caricature Christianity as an irrational leap, and it's not. But other people go the other way and caricature Christianity as some sort of hyper-rational faith, where it's some form of cold or objective assessment of doctrines, brute facts with just mental assent. But it's neither that. Christianity resists all philosophical classifications. John grounds our confidence, our faith in the objective historical facts plus their explanation plus the power of the Holy Spirit, the water and the blood and the Spirit. It's not just facts. It's certainly not just experience. But surely it is the two together. Maybe this will help to maybe uh, understand what I'm trying to say here. On the day of Pentecost, uh, if you're familiar at all with the book of Acts, chapter 2, it's a day um, to really mark, the, I suppose, in some ways, the, the birth of the church. Thousands and thousands of people heard the gospel, the good news about Jesus. The apostle Peter stood up and said to his Jewish listeners, he said, Jesus from Nazareth is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And that man who lived a perfect life, you committed him of, to death, you hung him up, you killed him, but on the third day, God raised him from the dead to show that he is Lord over all. 
And therefore, if you repent, if you turn away from your sin and you believe in Him, then you can have forgiveness of your sins. And it said there that at least 3,000 people came to faith, came to believe uh, in Jesus that day and received baptism. Now, there are many people listening to that explanation of the gospel on the day of Pentecost. For some people, it may have been new information to them. They'd never heard of Jesus before. But for many people, they probably had heard of Jesus before, but it wasn't the presentation of new evidence that convinced them. But it was that the evidence that they knew already came to them with undeniable power from the Holy Spirit. The truth came to them with fire. See, if you are a Christian, it is not just a question of whether you have grasped the gospel. But the question is more, has the gospel grasped you? Have the facts and the explanation caught fire in your heart and your mind? Because it really is, according to verse 11, a matter of life and death. The point is that if you have this confidence, it's because you know that God gave you life and that life is in the Son. Do you believe this testimony? Does it grasp you? Because if it does, then that is the basis of your confidence, the testimony of God. So first of all, know where your confidence comes from. And then John takes that central truth and he sort of packs it out into three different areas, three areas in your life where you will notice, if you understand the testimony of God, you will notice this confidence playing out. Firstly, in the power of prayer. You will be increasingly powerful in your prayer when you understand and receive and experience this confidence that you know that you have eternal life. Why is that? Well, look down at verse 14. And this is the confidence, John says, that we have towards him, that is towards God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests we have asked of him. This is one of those passages, I think, that when you read it, you tend to ask yourself, is this, is this really saying what I think it's saying? Is John right? He's saying, you can have such confidence in your prayer life that you will ask God for something in his will, anything in his will, and he will grant your request. Full stop. Because that's exactly what it says there. John is saying that there is a certain power available in your prayer. There is a certain interaction between the divine and the human that results in response and action from God's side and that's available to you so that you can pray in confidence. The key, if you've maybe picked it out already in that verse, is that we are to pray according to his will. In another way, if you know the will of God and you pray according to the will of God, you will pray powerful prayers because you are praying what God is willing, what he, God wants. 
The more you pray, the more your prayer will be heeded and acted upon. That sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? Imagine that, if that was characterising your prayer life, that prayer of confidence. When we think of this, we, we have to maybe uh, understand a couple of caveats to it, though. We have to, in order to pray this confident prayer, we have to know what the will of God is, first of all. And that seems to be what John is saying. What he wants. So what is the will of God? Where do we, where do we figure that out? How do we know how to pray in the will of God so that we can pray these powerful, confident prayers? Well, um, hopefully I'm uh, helping you to see this week in, week out. But God reveals himself through the Bible. He reveals his great purposes to restore all things to himself through Jesus in the Bible. He shows us how to live in the Bible. He shows us how to live lives that radiate him and bring fame to Jesus in the Bible. That's how he shows us his will in the Bible. Now, it doesn't mean to say that we will know moment by moment person to person, situation by situation, what God's exact and specific will is. But we can know God's will, his desire, his heart in general, as we read the scriptures, as we see God's big story from beginning to end. And when we pray along that line and in that stream, then we can start to experience and understand these powerful prayers that he's talking about. The second thing I want to say as a sort of caveat is that we may see when we pray these prayers that will be heard and will be acted upon, we may see instant results. As soon as we pray for something, it happens straight away. But then again, we may not pray, we may not get instant results. And that's why we rely on this big picture I was just talking about, to see God's plan for all things. But don't let those two little caveats allow you to undermine the power of this passage that we're just looking at here. Let me give you a bit of an illustration when it comes to prayer. Maybe this will be helpful. My daughter, Eliza, loves cream crackers. She loves cream crackers. And quite often she'll wander over to the cream cracker drawer and pull out a pack of cream crackers and hand them to me and pretty much um, hope that I'll pick one or two or three out for her to eat. And I will have a range of responses to her requests for cream crackers. Uh, sometimes she'll get an instant yes when I take out a cream cracker or two or three and give it to her to enjoy straight away. Sometimes I will say yes, but not now because I know the dinner time's coming and I want her to enjoy her tea, her pasta or whatever she's eating. And if she has too many cream crackers, she won't be able to finish her tea. Now, she doesn't like it when I say not now. She doesn't like it. She can't see why I would withhold it from her. She gets upset. But she can't see what I can see coming up. She's, a third response I might give her is, no, you're not having any cream crackers. You're not hungry. You've just had your tea. In fact, if I give you cream crackers, that will do you harm. You don't need it. And so these three responses are, kind of broadly speaking, the three responses we'll sometimes see in prayer. And completely unlike me, as an earthly 
fallen, fallible father. We are praying to a perfect, loving, all-powerful, heavenly father who sometimes grants us instant responses to our prayers. And when he does, and when we see prayers being answered there and there on the spot, it is wonderful, it is amazing, it is exciting. But sometimes God says to us, yes, I will grant your prayer, but not now. Of course, we want instant answers. We want instant results from our prayer. We ask ourselves, how can this possibly be bad for me? How how, how can this even be unhelpful for for me if you don't grant this request? Why wouldn't you want to give me this thing, God? Or why wouldn't you want to take this thing away from me if it's a bad thing? We can't see why God would withhold anything from us that we ask for. But we need to remember that we don't have the view of God and we can't see what he can see. God, as our loving Heavenly Father, withholds things for us, sometimes for our good and for his glory, because he sees more than we see. But either way, John seems to be saying, if we're praying according to his will, the answer is yes, the question is just when. I wonder if you're a Christian here this evening, if you realise the power that your prayer has when you pray in the will of God. Are you careful to pray in God's will? We get an example in verses 16 to 17 about what this looks like. He's addressing the church, and if one of us sees sin in a fellow brother or sister, a fellow believer, then he or she is, we are to ask God, and God will give that person life. That's it summed up in a concrete example. God will listen to the prayer of confidence and will give that person life. So there's one specific area that you and I can pray for. We can be confident that we know the will of God, that God wants a brother or a sister who is in sin to be restored so we can be confident we can pray in his will and he will grant our request. By the way, some of the terminology is maybe a bit confusing. When, when John says, a sin that does not lead to death, he's referring to the kind of sin that a Christian does, even when they believe in Jesus, they sin from time to time, but that won't lead to death, ultimate death. He says there's another kind of sin that does lead to death, but that's the sin that someone outside the community of faith would do. That's a slightly different thing. But anyway, the point he's getting at is that if you pray according to the will of God, God will answer. So you can see the importance of praying for one another in the church. You can see the importance of living life together in the church. Just see there in verse 16, it says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, it assumes that they're living life together and they're doing more than just meeting up on a Sunday evening. If anyone sees... So we see, first of all, that one of the areas that we can have confidence in is in our prayer life. But secondly, um, he points out that we can have confidence, or rather the confidence comes out when we have peace in life. First of all in prayer, secondly in peace in life. What he's saying in verse 18 is if you accept the testimony of God, if it's real to you, then he who was born of God will protect you and the evil one will not touch you. Just let that sink in for a moment. 
He who was born of God is not referring to you, by the way. It's referring to Jesus. And what John is saying here is that Jesus Christ protects and makes secure all the children of God. The devil does not touch them or cling to them. Contrast that in verse 19 with the unbelieving world that lies in the power of the evil one. That does not apply to the child of God. Those who accept the testimony about Jesus are under the protection and the power of the Son of God. They are kept safe. Jesus says something similar in John, the Gospel, chapter 10. He says to, about his people, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. You know, as a medical student, um, I got to study a bit of psychiatry. And uh, one of the conditions that I studied was a condition you may have heard of in the news or maybe know someone who has this. It's called post-traumatic stress disorder. And it was initially uh, described by people in the military who were away fighting wars and they had to suffer and see uh, very traumatic things happen. And so they came home and it continued to have this ongoing effect in their lives. Nowadays, it's not even just limited to those with a military background, but anybody who has suffered some traumatic event in the past could potentially have PTSD in the future. It keeps on coming up, keeps on having an impact in their lives. And one symptom of PTSD is this symptom called hypervigilance. Hypervigilance, which means that people with PTSD are always on guard. They have this ongoing sense of threat. Something's about to happen. They're expecting some attack imminently. They're always ready to respond. And so these people come across, if you or I to, to, to look at them, they come across as very jumpy individuals. They're very easily spooked. They may even appear to react in a very over-the-top way to something that you and I might consider to be fairly small. But the issue, and the point I want to get to, is that many of us live lives like this. Maybe not necessarily at the level of those who are diagnosed with PTSD, but many people in our own society live lives with this vague sense of threat, like they're expecting some attack. Their confidence is paper thin. It could get taken away at any time and so they are ready to respond at every moment, ready to defend themselves. This scenario is not limited to people outside the church. It includes also religious people and non-religious people can suffer in this way. And it stems from the fact that for many people their confidence is flimsy. They have no peace in life. And if they do, it's sort of transitory. It's not deepening or growing in their lives. Why is that? Why do some people have this? Well, non-religious people may build or try to build their self-confidence around many things, around such things as their success in their career, around their physical appearance and their performance, around perhaps romantic relationships, their intellectual ability, even their family. All of these things are fine things, but they are, give you a 
far less certainty. They provide little in the way of long-term confidence and security. What happens when you don't get that promotion? What happens when we pick up an injury and our physical ability begins to fade? What happens when your relationship doesn't work out? When members of your family don't meet your expectations? What then? Religious people can do the same things and sometimes they even use religion themselves to build their self-confidence. Giving money, doing good works for the poor, praying long prayers, doing their quiet times. Again, these are all very fine things indeed. But they can all be unfit to give the confidence and security that only God can provide. And see, when these things, when these means of building self-confidence are threatened or challenged, we turn into people who are jumpy, who are ready to defend themselves, ready to react. They often act in an over-the-top way. People outside wonder why they are so deeply affected. So many people live with this low level of anxiety, this constant sense of threat. Why is that? Because the grounds of their confidence and security is being threatened. And they will never have this peace that lasts. But John is saying here that that is not the case for you if you have received the testimony of God, which is the gift of eternal life in his Son by water and blood. If that is you, then you are secure. If you are a child of God, then God, the Son, has got you in his care. The evil one cannot cling to you. The evil one cannot drag you away. No one, says Jesus, will snatch them out of my hands. Do you know this? If you are a believer in Jesus, do you know that Jesus has hold of you firmly? Do you know that when harm comes, when bad things happen, your life, your life ultimately will never be taken away from you. And when suffering and hardship comes along, you know, child of God, that this is not because you're being punished. This is not because God is angry with you. This is not your final destination. This is not the thing that defines you. The more you build your confidence around what John is pointing us towards, the more you will see peace increase in your life. So we've seen this confidence play out, first of all, in powerful prayer. We've seen this confidence play out, secondly, in peace in your life. Thirdly and finally, this confidence will play out as you experience amazement at the presence, at your presence before God. Look down at the last verse or two, verse 20. And we know... Well, the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Know him who is true. John says that the Son, that is Jesus, will give you understanding to know the Father. The Father is true, he says. But he also says, you are in him who is true, that is, Jesus Christ. 
So the Father is true, and Jesus Christ is true. And for the eagle-eyed among you, back in verse 6, the Spirit is truth. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all true, are all truth, according to John. What's he saying? He's saying that if you accept the testimony that he is laying before you tonight, if it is real to you, then you can know God truly, and you can truly know God. You can know God truly, and you can truly know God. What does it mean to truly know God? To truly know God means really and actually to know God. It means there is no pretense. This is not a game or some fantasy. You can actually know God, the divine being that created the heavens and the earth, everything that is seen and unseen. You can know God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can know him intimately as, a, as you know a friend. This is not knowing about God. This is knowing God. It's the difference between visiting a dating website and seeing perhaps someone's profile page and you can see that this person has a certain color hair and likes a certain type of music and likes watching certain movies. You can know about someone just like that. <clears throat> but how different is that to knowing someone you've been married to for many years, decades? You know those facts about them, but you know them in a way that cannot be conveyed on a profile on a dating website. And in the same way, John is saying that you can know God in this way. You're not some passive, objective observer, but you can enjoy relationship with God, communion or fellowship with him. I love this passage in Genesis 3, just before what we call the fall, where sin entered into the world. And it said that the Lord God was walking in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. I love that. This beautiful picture of God the Creator walking among his people with his creation, enjoying their company, him enjoying their company. And John is offering us that same level of fellowship with God. You can truly know God. But you can also know God truly. I know it sounds the same, but it's different. Listen for a few minutes and hopefully I'll try and explain why that is. To know God truly is to know God is truth. To know God as he is. We're not getting to know through the Bible a pretend version and the real God is somehow further back or even more distant or different. The Bible is not some sort of screen or shield that we know and the real God is somewhere over there. No, no, no. We can know God truly. God describes and shares himself through his word. So when we read the Bible and understand what he's like, we can know God truly, actually know God. This is how he is. Any other version of God that we think about, but that is somehow different from how he reveals himself in the Bible, is not the real God at all. It's an idol, a construction. A lesser image. That's why John ends by saying in verse 21, little children, keep yourself from idols. In his mind, he's not thinking of the, a little wooden structure that people might be tempted to go off and make. He's saying when you think about God, make sure you're thinking the right things about God. You can truly know God. 
and you can know God truly. And so when you do that, when you see your presence before God is one of intimate fellowship, it results in amazement. It results in awe. It shapes your daily life. When you realize you can know God truly and truly know God, you'll ask yourself, if I'm in fellowship with a God like that who is true, what in my life can I hold on to myself? What can I hold back from a God like that? What is stopping me from enjoying that fellowship with God? So let's round up as we come into a close. We've seen at the start, that our confidence is to be based upon the testimony that God gives us concerning his son. I wonder if your life is marked by a growing confidence based on that testimony. Have you grasped the Christian gospel? And has that Christian gospel grasped you? Are you seeing, as you progress as a Christian, more confidence in your prayer? more confidence as you realise your peace, more amazement as you realise your presence. Maybe you have grown cold as a believer in Jesus. Maybe you have become distracted by some of the things in your life. Maybe your life is overrun by anxiety. You're always sensing a threat from somewhere. You just don't know where it is, some enemy or other. Maybe you need this evening a fresh reminder of God and his testimony about Jesus in whom there is life. Maybe you need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit to push the testimony of Jesus even deeper into your soul. Maybe you desire this evening to be renewed in that confident prayer that prays according to the will of God and sees him answer. Maybe you desire this evening a deepening sense of peace in your life, an end to the anxiety. Maybe you want this evening a heightened sense of awe and amazement as you consider your presence before the God that you can know truly and that you can truly know. We're going to have a few moments of quiet contemplation as we think about some of these things. And the guys are going to come up in a few moments and and lead us in in, in prayer. Sorry, lead us in song. And after we've had a few moments of quiet thought, we're going to ask together, we're going to pray together, and we're going to ask God to give us that fresh conviction of the testimony about Jesus Christ. We're going to ask for that deep confidence, that deep peace to be given to us. So just a a few moments of silent contemplation, then we'll stand together and pray. Father God, you hear our silent prayers. We thank you that you have made us to know you and be known by you. 
We thank you that you sent your son by water and by blood so that we can know that we are forgiven of all our sins and cleansed from all our unrighteousness. We ask this evening that you would fill us afresh. We ask that you would make us confident based on the testimony about Jesus. We ask that you would deepen our peace. We ask that you would empower our prayers for one another. We ask that you would increase our awe and amazement in your presence. <laughs>